0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. If I'm wondering whether or not the jury will tolerate me getting upset, then it's too early. You know, It's when I feel like the jury is sitting there saying, God, you have got to get this guy. You have got to get this expert, because if you don't, there's something wrong going on here. And then, when you've got the green light, you know that, you just eviscerate them with the evidence.
1: Please rise. Court is now in session.
0: All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials
1: podcast. As always, I'm your host, Steve Lowry, here with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, we're here on a Monday right after the weekend. How are you doing?
2: I'm good. I'm good. I just got back from um, Sun Valley, Idaho, where it was cold.
1: Yeah, I know. I saw, I saw the pictures of you hiking through the mountains. <laughs>
2: It was fun. The weather wasn't, uh, terrific. It was kind of rainy, but it was nice to remember what it, what it feels like to be cold for a little while. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure I'll regret saying that when <laughs> yeah. winter starts.
1: Exactly. Well, um, yeah, I was, uh, you know, we've told everybody that part of the reason why we were taking a small break from the podcast and I don't know what day this is going to air on, but, uh, I'm just going to talk about what's going on in my life right now. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, we, you know, it was because I was supposed to have a trial, which was supposed to begin this week, and then, um, and then, uh, you know, apparently we're not beginning now. It just. Uh the defendants have taken something up on appeal. I guess they weren't uh, didn't feel like they were ready to go to trial yet.
2: <laughs> they were listening to the podcast and got super yeah, intimidated. That's right.
1: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I did have fun this weekend going to watch uh, the George Bulldogs uh, beat Notre Dame. So uh, so that tells everybody when we're recording this. But
2: uh, yeah, I was I was very jealous. I was watching the game on the on the plane, and then it landed and we were like deboarding when there were like five minutes left on the clock.
1: Oh, so. True.
2: It was very nerve-wracking.
1: It, it was a it was a nerve-wracking game. Notre Dame played very well and I was I was worried for the Bulldogs for a while.
2: Yeah, same. Well, um, But this I, isn't I, a football podcast.
1: No, not at all. Although although I do I I, I mean, I know that uh, our our um, guest Skip Fink Bonner went to Duke, but uh, might be an Alabama fan since he's from uh, Mobile, Alabama and lives in Mobile. Skip, how are you doing? I'm good. Roll tide. <laughs> no, we're going to have to edit that out. I mean, <laughs> uh, we, we uh, you know, us people over here in Georgia have suffered uh, disappointment at the hands uh. of Alabama for the past couple of years. So uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's all we always get close and then not close enough.
0: Uh, this might be your year. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know.
1: Uh, all right. Well, uh, Skip, thank you so much for coming on the, uh, on the podcast. Uh, we've got a really fascinating case to talk about, and I, I want to get into it because there's, uh, I mean, p- part of what I want to talk to you about, and we'll get into this as we're talking, is the fact that um, not only did you try this case in what I uh, have always heard and believe to be a very conservative uh, uh, Baldwin County, Alabama, on a medical malpractice case, which I which I always thought that not many people did medical malpractice in Alabama. So I'm interested to hear about that. Um, but just uh, uh, did fantastic work on the discovery side of this, and we're going to get into all the layers of uh, of, of uh, things you had to do in order to figure out this case and present it to the jury. Sure. Well, so, um, so Skip, let me tell everybody about you. Uh, so Skip is a partner at Cunningham Bounds in Mobile, Alabama. And Skip is a, uh, uh, I guess, you, what do you call it? A double blue devil, uh, Duke undergrad yeah. and Duke law. And, uh, and Skip has had uh, multiple verdicts in the top 100 uh, in the country, including a $192 million uh, intellectual property and trade secret case. A forty million uh, dollar single uh, wrongful death case and multiple other multi million dollar verdicts. Uh, Skip is a uh, is a certified civil trial specialist with the National Board of Trial Advocacy, Uh, has been named as one of the uh, top twenty attorney or I'm sorry, as one of the litigation stars by the National Personal Injury um, uh, by benchmark plaintiff in 2012-2013 uh, and then has been routinely named as one of the best lawyers in, in America in both personal injury, product liability, commercial litigation, mass tort and class actions. And then Skip, what I wanted to hear is you, uh, you are in the uh, McGill Tool and Catholic High School Hall of Fame uh, for athletic yeah. accomplishments. So I wanted to hear what, uh, what athletic accomplishments we're talking about.
0: That was so long ago. It's hard to remember, Steve. Um, I, I played about 50 or 60 pounds ago. I played competitive tennis. So nice. um, we did real well, um, well that's I was awesome. in high school. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, that's awesome. Um, all right. Well, Skip, let's, um, and I, I, I should tell everybody that if you want to look up Skip, you can go to the his website, which is CunninghamBounds.com. That's uh, C-U-N-N-I-N-G-H-A-M-B-O-U nds.com cunninghambounds.com and look up uh skip Finkbonner. um so skip this case that we're talking about is called uh juno or it's the estate of sharon juno versus uh douglas amare md golf health hospitals uh precise solutions and there's some other defendants uh, medusend and samtech and the result of it uh was a 140 million dollar verdict uh for your client um Bradley Juno, the husband uh, of um, Sharon, and, um, and this was uh, for her, her unfortunate death in, in what is just a, um, I think it's a lot of people's nightmare about going into the hospital. Uh, Sharon was a, a brittle diabetic um, and had gone into the hospital, I, I wasn't quite sure exactly why she went into the hospital, but when they transferred her to a, um, a rehab facility, there was a essentially a transcription error where she was supposed to be getting eight units of the of insulin, of levomere insulin, and it somehow came out as eighty units of levomere insulin. And uh and then when they actually gave her that dose, um, it caused her to uh, go into uh, medical distress, uh, and they found her the next morning, um, basically going into cal- cardiopulmonary arrest and Seven days later she passed away um, and like i said skip the uh, the thing that I found really fascinating is the the level of work that you all you and your team had to have done to get to the bottom of what happened in this uh, this you know a catastrophic medical transcription error where they uh, gave her 10 times the amount of the drug that she was supposed to get.
0: Yeah. um, When the case started off, it was a, it was a malpractice case against the treating physician and the hospital. um, And then the receiving institution, Mercy Medical, um, where she was going for post-hospital kind of rehab to get back on her feet for five to seven days. And it was, after she got to the rehab institution that she was given the 80 units of Levemir. So those three uh, entities were well, the doctor and his, his practice and then the hospital Thomas hospital and then mercy medical were sued. And it was clear there was a, a, a medication error. And then the, the at bottom, it turned out that there was a, um an error in the, the paperwork that had come from Thomas hospital. Um, so the those defendants said, well, there was a transcription error, at least Mercy Medical did. So I started pushing to um, depose the transcriptionist. And uh, there's a protocol for the transcription. You're supposed to, uh, you know, the transcriptionist listens to the transcription and then it, it's, it's read by a second reader usually and then sent back to the doctor. And the doctor is given, I think, Ten days or so to read it and sign off on it, but uh, th- that doesn't really address a situation where you've got a a patient moving from one institution to the other because that happens more quickly than ten days but anyway uh the the uh, the real question was who who did the transcription and um so I uh, started pushing the hospital to let me depose their transcriptionist uh, and I was thinking at the time that their transcriptionist was a hospital employee or at least a a third party subcontractor, a vendor that uh, was local. And um, I couldn't get an answer to that for a while. And they said, Well, we have a contract with um, Precise Solutions. So, and and they're responsible for this. And they produced the contract with Precise Solutions. And Precise Solutions is, was out of Atlanta. It was a uh, nationwide transcription service. So I sued them and then said, You know, give me your. Uh, identify the transcriptionist. And that took a while for them to say, well, um, we don't employ the transcriptionist. You have to ask Precise International. And here's our contract with Precise International. So I sued them and then said, identify the transcriptionist and let me take their depositions. And they said, well, we didn't do the transcription. We actually have a contract with Medusend. And I said, well, who's Medusend? Well, they're over in Mumbai, uh, India. So I had to use the Hague and sued uh, Medusind. And we fought through the personal jurisdiction stuff, as you can imagine, and then said, okay, identify the the transcriptionists and let me depose them. And they said, well, they're not employed by us. They're employed by Samtech, And Samtec is in a, an area uh, just outside of New Delhi in the northern part of India. So I sued Samtec Another jurisdictional fight. Oh um, yeah. So we get them in the case. And finally, I get the, t- the names of the two transcriptionists. And so what I did is I hired an FBI agent, a former, a retired FBI agent, and a former uh, agent for the CIA who had some knowledge of that area of the world and sent them over there to find the two transcriptionists because they weren't direct employees of any of the defendants. And they went and located them and and took photographs of where they lived. It was pretty deplorable. Um, as it turns out, it was fortunate that I did that because the transcription work that they did was done at home, um, I guess over the over the internet. So there's a voice file. So I tried to depose them, and I took corporate depositions of Medusend in well, a precise and in precise International in Atlanta, and then a, a Medusend in. Um, in Mumbai, uh, and then we flew up to New Delhi to take the deposition of samtec and um the interesting thing about that is that uh two two things really or three things: one when we got to um to New Delhi, so I'd already been in India for a week we got up to New Delhi. And we're going to do a video deposition and I've got orders from the Hague and orders from the court and service and all that stuff that's been accomplished. They send a magistrate in India to sit in on the deposition. So we go to this place of business and it's on a dirt street, literally with animals out in front right. and, and it's a cinder block building. And so we go knock on the door and these two guys that look like, I don't know, they're scary looking dudes. I had taken my, um, lead investigator Glenn Garside with me, um, over there. And so they wouldn't let us in the building. And uh, and the magistrate was trying to make peace. And I said, well, we have orders from courts in India and the United States that allow us to do this. They're parties to the case. So finally, he negotiated a a deal where m- my investigator and I could both go in the building, but not bring in cameras. And I said, well, what about the deposition? Well, they're not going to sit for deposition. So we go in the building and um, there's nothing in there, but but like 25 year old computers with the cords wrapped around them and stuff and like food spattered on the wall. And I'm like, you know, uh, then they're telling us to get out and Glenn, who's, he used to be head of homicide investigation in Mobile Started, obviously, was taking mental notes and walking off the size of the rooms and that kind of stuff. And um, there got to be a confrontation where they were physically going to try to get us out of the building. And Glenn got involved, and uh, it really got very heated. And so then what happened was we left the building and uh, went out into the street. And, of course, the court reporter's there, and she says, what am I going to do? And I said, you're going to sit right here in this dirt road, and we're going (laughs) to go on the record. And the videographer said, what do you want me to do? I said, turn the camera on. So they turned the camera on and I marked as an exhibit all eight orders that I had. And, they, and the backdrop was the building itself and that we're in India and anybody that wants to make a statement for their client can, can do so. So, uh, of course, they all wanted to say they were there, you know, all right, the defense right. lawyers. So they go on the video and say that they were there. And um, uh, so I have a witness that's going to help me get all this in, in Glenn. Thank goodness I brought him. Um, and so we were fortunately, we were, the judge allowed us to use that at trial and the, the FBI, uh, agent, uh, and all that. So I was never able to take the depositions of the two people that did the medical transcription. If you can believe oh, wow. that in, in a medical transcription error case, yeah. which is the important <laughs> part of that story. And then, you know, I learned about a year ago that, um, the lawyer that represented, um, Precise International. Um, he wrote. He wrote a self-published book, and there was a story in there where, after the, I took the depositions in um, in Mumbai, before we went up and had this episode up in the northern part of the country, that he was called into a meeting with the two guys that ended up threatening us up in the northern part of the the country where they said that they could make this problem disappear by making oh, me disappear. And the guy never told me about it. I found out wow. about it after he published his book, which, you know, I thought that was pretty Oh my pretty Yeah, I know it's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. You know? So wow. anyway,
2: Holy cow. So that,
0: that, that, that's the thread that kind of runs through the case. It's just really wanting to take the deposition to the people that that screwed it up. Now, while all this is going on over a period of a year and a half or so, two years just trying to get to that point, I found out that um, that uh, Precise Solutions had people on con- under contract in the United States, and they were really, really good transcriptionists, um, men and women throughout the country, and there was a whole series of, of protocols that are followed to make sure you get it right and they were basically outsourced, um, and and these folks were in the United States were told to train up the second readers and the transcriptionists by working online with them over in India, and then they were forced out of their job, so they weren't real happy about that, and then they would see the work product coming back, and they were re- reporting back to to precise solutions um that this is deplorable i mean somebody's going to get hurt with this so i had we had a half a dozen of those type of witnesses from i don't know five or six states throughout the country um they testified by video deposition
2: this episode of the great trials podcast is brought to you by legal technology services or lts
0: Yvonne,
1: have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked?
2: No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS.
1: Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury, these are the experts.
2: They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier
1: they have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the daily report so you should definitely call them up and when you do mention the great trials podcast and that's legal technology services you can talk to bob melanie or anyone else on their team they are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs legal technology services at ltsatlanta.com that's ltsatlanta.com yeah, I guess I didn't understand that. So the, uh, the the people who were supposed to be training these people, when you say they were forced out of their jobs, was it because they had trained the Indian
0: transcriptionists? And so they no, were- no, no, no. What happened was they, had, they were paid 20 to 30 $40 an hour. And this company, Precise Solutions, figured that they could outsource that and pay somebody $2 an hour um, but they needed to train them up. And so they took the workforce that they had throughout the United States, people with the 20, 30 years of experience, and had them, they'd say, well, we're bringing some new people on. Help us uh, uh, read and make sure that there's a scoring system, that they meet the scoring system and, and, and all that. And so all of these folks in the United States helped do that, not knowing at first. That the reason they were doing it, they were they were training their replacements. And so then they all got fired. Oh, wow.
2: This is, there's so much crazy about this case and this story. And like, I mean, now it's already gotten so much crazier than I, because before we started recording, I thought the craziest thing about this case was that I always assumed to the extent any transcription was even happening. It was like the doctor's nurse or physician's assistant or something in the whole, you know, in the hallway or in their offices, not, this kind of remote thing, let alone something that was happening in India. But now that turns out to almost be like well,
0: the that's most what everybody normal thinks. part about this case. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what everybody thinks, including the doctors. The doctors and the, and the employees at Thomas Hospital didn't know about this, except for the hospital administrator. She oh, knew because wow. she had contracted out. And then, you know, if you go into a hospital, historically, I don't know what it's like now, but you'll see a doctor getting on a phone after he, he sees he, or she sees a patient and they're dictating into the phone and I always thought that was going down into a room somewhere in the hospital and being transcribed there. Well, I guess it's just as easy to record it and then shoot the, the, uh, the audio file by electronic mail or some other method to, uh, to somewhat someone to transcribe it elsewhere. Yeah, and That's what happened here.
1: I thought one of the really uh, good demonstratives that you did, and you had a a bunch of great demonstratives for your opening, but one of the ones that I really liked was this sort of telephone game uh, demonstrative where you start out with, uh, you know, Dr. Amare uh, at Thomas Hospital, and then it goes to uh, Mercy Medical, and then, you know, the next slide you added that, uh, oh, oh, by the way, Precise Solutions was in between there, and then you had you know, and by the way, Precise International and Medusind was in between there. And it just like with each slide, it just kept getting longer and longer of all the people this transcription had to go through. And and there's no wonder why you'd get uh, the kind of errors you did in this case.
0: Right. There actually were, they call them an error in a transcription that implicates patient safety is called a um, critical error. And there's a scoring system. It turned out there was not just this critical error. There was a critical error on two lab values too. I can't remember what they were now, potassium and something else.
1: Yeah, um, I, I've actually got that here. You, it was one on the potassium where they understated it uh, like it was actually 3.9 and it was a 2.9 and then the platelet count. And, uh, and I think you had some testimony from uh, Precise that they were supposed to have a 98.5% at a minimum. Uh, accuracy rate and they were telling you that this was more like a 93 with these three care
0: yeah well what what yeah that's there there are standards um that that apply certainly in the united states um which the experts identified and that's the standard of the united states and and then and um they should apply throughout the world if you're going to transcribe for patients or doctors in the united states one of the things that was sort of explosive was that the um, the corporate spokesperson who I deposed in Mumbai for, I, I think it was Medusend testified that they're not required, they weren't required by agreement or custom and practice to adhere to that standard, uh, even though they were doing transcriptions for, for medical institutions in the United States. <laughs> well, have you told anybody that you've got a contract within the United States that you're not, you don't feel obligated to follow the, the accuracy standards. And, uh, they said, no. He, so.
1: Yeah. I said one of the other uh, ones you had from him, uh, cause it was that, I, I I agree. I mean, I, I, I imagine when the jury saw that, they just, uh, got really annoyed, but, uh, but you basically just asked him, you know, does Medusen take any responsibility for patient safety over here? And he was basically like, no, we don't.
0: Right. Right.
2: It's crazy. So as part of, um, I noticed that um, one of the things that you had mentioned in the complaint was that um, that these transcriptionists had had other errors. Was the way that, that and since you weren't able to talk to them, was they, how did you get that information? Was it through the people who had trained them?
0: It was, they, they had a, I can't remember exactly now, but I know that there were, um, they would do quality reviews uh, on the transcriptionists. And I think the reason that happened is because MeduSend had contracted with Samtech. And so MeduSend was, was required to do some type of quality review, um, under its contract with Precise. And so when they did, um, it turns out that one of these transcriptions had a host of critical errors, um, and I can't remember now. There were some emails going back and forth that we were able to unearth, and they were they were pretty damaging. Um, Got it. In that regard, it looked
1: like you were showing maybe that in their own audit they had sh- they had like 116 critical errors and 700 English language errors or yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was it was pretty pretty astonishing. Yeah
1: one thing I was wondering is sounded like uh, from the way you were given the opening that um, that uh, the doctor that you had a recording of the doctor's transcription and he yes. had actually transcribed it correctly or not he, transcribed, he, he had actually dictated it correctly at eight units but that he was supposed to go back and check that afterwards and, and never
0: did that well he was he was his dictation, the audio file, he said eight units of Levamir. He was talking fast. Of course, he doesn't know who he's talking to. He assumes that they're the normal people that do the transcription. So he had no idea this stuff was being transcribed over overseas. So, um, it was apparent to the jury and everybody in the courtroom, he said eight units of Levamir, not 80. And the, the other side, the, the other defendants defended the case, by saying that, listen, the ultimate quality of the of the final report is the responsibility of the hospital. And the hospital said, no, the ultimate responsibility for the accuracy of the final report is the doctor because he has to sign it. And then I asked the hospital, well, how, many, how much time do you give him to sign? And it was like, I can't remember, seven days or 10 days or two weeks, something like that. And I said, well, he never even saw this. He didn't see this transcription until after she was dead. So, how can he be responsible for this? You know and um so, why did you send an unsigned unreviewed youth hospital uh, discharge summary to the rehab facility without sending the medication administration record, which was obviously different than than the discharge summary, and they didn't have an answer for that. <laughs>
1: One of the uh, things that I noticed here is that Precise, uh, you know, who is, the I guess, the first layer of transcription, they they were claiming that what was on the voice recognition was that the doctor said 80 minutes of levomere but you were saying just now that it was pretty clear to everybody that he said eight. I mean, how do they straight face make that argument? They,
0: well, they, they pushed that early on, and then I think, I can't remember now at trial whether they really hung tight on that or not. But after the opening statement and the first witness when the tape was played and uh, with decent, you know, audio equipment, it was obviously said eight units, not 80. Um, As far as that –
2: I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, As far as the eight and 80, I know nothing about insulin. Is 80 like – is that something that somebody else – that could be a dosage that somebody else would – would get?
0: It's, 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 it's way up there. I mean, it's, it's, it's conceivable, but extraordinarily unlikely. And that's what the transcription defendants in the hospital said about the nurse at the rehab facility that administered the 80 units that she should have questioned it. Um, And I said, well, that's a question of fact. We'll let the jury decide it. And I'm not defending the administration of the medication. Maybe you're right, but y'all need to make that pitch because I'm not, Helping you defend anything,
2: right? Right. <laughs> well, and it,
1: it looked like it was so. From what I could tell in the medical records, there was it was in there two different times under the doctor's orders. One looked like it was handwritten eighty, and then one looked like it was typed in eighty. So, I mean, from the nurse's standpoint, I, I, I did see the um, uh, the uh, medical reconciliation record or the medical administration record that showed eight, but I mean, she's looking at two different orders physician's orders.
0: Well, they're they're actually, yeah, I didn't mean to, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to speak over you, but they're actually two, there's the, there's the nurse that's responsible for gathering the paperwork together and making sure that the correct paperwork leaves Thomas hospital and, and there's continuity of care and it's delivered with the patient at the rehab facility. And, um, there may have been an inconsistency between some of the information in that package of documents, um, I don't recall now because I tried the case a while back, right, but I, I do know that they they looked at the um, the discharge summary at the rehab facility, and what you may have seen may have been a handwritten document at Mercy Medical where they took off the, oh, the yeah. 80 units and, and put it on the, the medication uh, record at the rehab facility. You see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. That that makes, uh, that makes sense. Um, Well, so let me ask you this, uh, Skip, you know, um, you know, over here in Georgia, uh, we've always heard that medical malpractice cases in Alabama are extremely difficult. And then from what I understand, Baldwin County is supposed to be extremely difficult. So walk me through that. I mean, uh, how how is medical malpractice over in, uh, in Alabama and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, uh, and how you were able to put this case together in, in light of the difficulties you have there.
0: Um, well, it's, it's, it's a diff- Alabama in general is a difficult venue for medical cases. Uh, we've, we have historically done quite a few, there are two or three firms, three or four firms in Alabama that do that, this type of work. Uh, a couple of firms up in Birmingham and <clears throat> we do a lot down here, but we probably only take one or two cases for every, hundred calls uh, right. or 200 calls, you know, and we've got um, professionals on, <clears throat> excuse me, on retainer doctors to review things for us. Um, so we have to be very careful, but, uh, and Baldwin County does have the reputation of being very conservative. And that's maybe why there they wasn't offering the case. I don't know. It's shortly before the trial, I got a call from some adjust or somewhere. I don't I don't know. And so she was gonna he or she, I can't remember if it's a man or woman, was gonna do me a favor and offer a hundred thousand dollars to defray my costs. And I said, No, we're not doing that. But right. uh, but you know, listen it's a it's a it's a patient safety uh issue right. really. And I viewed that as different than just a um a, you know a misdiagnosis where you know someone's diagnosed with viral gastroenteritis and they really got encephalitis you know what i mean um it, it's a th- this was an error that was created by the the system and i could trace it down and it's everybody's nightmare right i yeah. mean y- you know
2: right and it's it's less of a you know when you're talking about a misdiagnosis case it's i mean that's more of like a one off versus something like this who knows how many other errors there were that just weren't critical errors or how many errors well, yeah, that and, continue to happen it, yeah
0: well, and, the, you know, the doctors and nurses at the hospital, none of the institutions knew that where the transcription was going or what the protocol was for seeing that, whether or not it was correct and, and grading it and all that. I mean, they just, you know, they found out about it, some of them at trial for the first time. Wow. Um, so, you know, but, yeah, and, and I didn't over try the case, we just laid it all out. And, um, and then in closing argument, I got on them pretty hard and I suggested $70 million. Um And obviously, I underestimated how <laughs> the yeah. upset the jury would get. It probably should ask for more.
1: <laughs> well, they gave you more. so. Uh. Yeah, they did.
2: Yeah, did. Did we talk about that, Steve? Did we? Did we actually say the verdict
1: yet? Oh. I, I did, but I, I should say it again. Okay. It was a hundred and forty million dollars for a wrongful death case uh, in a very conservative county. Uh, did you get a chance to talk to the jury afterwards on what they um, what was really driving them?
0: You know, I left them alone. They, they when they left the courtroom, um, several of them uh, came up and shook my hand and thanked me for for handling the case. Um, but I pretty much left them alone after that. Uh, I, I'm, years ago, I used to interview jurors um, when I was younger all the time. But now, I really don't want to open that can of worms. Um, typically, you know what we do is is write and thank the jurors. I did write them and thank them for their service and said that um, if you're if there's a request for an interview by anybody, it's it's not going to help me or my client because they're going to be trying to undo the, the verdict. You're free to talk to whoever you want to talk to. Just understand that it's, it's not going to help me or not going to help my client. And so i leave it there. Um, you know, with, with the internet and cell phones and all that stuff, it's, you know, yeah, it's kind of scary. You know, somebody goes on the internet to check out an intersection um, you know, to see what it looks like from Google Earth, mm-hmm. and <laughs> your verdict gets reversed. You know, so right. Um, anyway,
1: yeah, and I I uh, I just noticed from the verdict form that I made a mistake at the beginning of the show. I said that Bradley Junior Juno was the husband of Sharon Juno, but he was actually uh, her son. Uh, right. right. So yeah, sorry about that. Um, no, no, it's okay. But um, <clears throat> well. Uh, You know, I I also wanted to talk to you about, you know, so since you were in, uh, Baldwin County and I, I, I don't know how, uh, how often you're in that County or, uh, but did you do any focus groups or come up with any sort of a plan on jury selection on what type of jury you were looking for or what your strategy was there?
0: Uh, yeah, we did do, um, a mock trial and we did it over in Baldwin County. Um, and it, it showed that we had a very good case. Um, it really, it didn't indicate to us that, that any one particular type of juror would be horrible for us. Um, obviously we didn't want people that worked in the medical field, like in a typical medical case, you know, you wouldn't want that or, or an engineer or somebody that worked as an accountant or, you know, a, a big business owner or something like that. But even the, even, even normally conservative jurors, uh, they go to the hospital too, you know, right, um, and cutting corners to save money on a on transcription that deals with medications is not something that uh is easy for anyone, no matter how conservative they are, philosophically, to defend when they're back deliberating what to do about this problem so yeah, that's what our that's what our mock trial and focus group kind of demonstrated to us.
1: Well, and I think you had evidence that showed that uh, the reason why they had uh, sent this transcription overseas was because they were able to save two cents per line on the medical right. transcription. And that you also had some evidence, I thought I saw, that uh, showed uh, that the error rate for overseas transcription was much higher than domestic transcription.
0: Yeah, I think I, think I did. I don't remember. Specific, I mean, there were so many facts in the case, Steve, that I, I can't remember every every. Uh, detail, but I think you're correct about that.
1: Did you, uh, did you have an expert, like a, a medical transcription expert or, or did you use a nurse for that or what, did, or did you just use your cross examination? Cause you obviously had a lot of good, uh, former employees of precise who were, who were basically, um, giving you great testimony on that.
0: Yeah, they turned into, um, you know, you could play the audio for them and it'd say that's eight and you know, it would be, it'd be a, uh, a breach of the standard of care in the field of medical transcription to transcribe that as 80. Oh yes, it's a deviation. You know, it's a, it's a breach. So I don't think I really needed to get, I, I don't think that we had a, an individual transcription expert. Now we had a, we had a MD toxicologist, Dr. Walson, on what the cause of death was because there was, it looked like for a while there might be a dispute about that. And then we had, we had some experts uh, from Arizona Um, on the vetting process that needs to be followed when a hospital hires um, third parties to undertake um, to provide services that implicate patient safety, like medical transcription. And it turned out that we had problems with, not with our qualifications, but with some of the things that that, um, we didn't know about. And I can't remember the lady's name, but she was out in Arizona. She's very highly credentialed, but um, so we used part of her deposition at trial, um, and that really uh, was directed more at the Thomas Hospital administration. And then, you know, we cross-examined. I got to cross-examine the hospital administrator, and when she testified late in the trial she said that, that what I was saying was false. And then I had her on video deposition saying the exact opposite. And then she said that I tricked her. And then I said, well, let's play it again. You know, cause I, I didn't try, I don't trick anybody. just take right. your position and then I'll, I'll move from there. And, um, and then, you know, she had, after this tragedy had, had, uh, canned this overseas transcription service and had hired a different one. And it's still not told the doctors who she was using. So she was still using a, an overseas transcription service, but nobody knew it but her and one other guy in the hospital. Wow. And I asked, I asked, you know, what did you do to vet them? Well, nothing. You know, <laughs> what did you do to vet this crowd? Well, I didn't even know that they were being used, but I did nothing to vet any of them.
1: Wow, wow. Yeah, and I, and I, I, I saw that there was, um, you had uh, some literature that talked about how that now that transcriptions were being moved overseas, that, you, that there was a duty on the facilities to do an on-site visit, and, uh, and you had some great testimony from uh, various folks saying, you know, did you have any idea who Medusind or Samtech was before this case or before this deposition, and they were all, they all said they had no right. idea who they were. Right, right.
2: Yeah, And how did you, I I see on the verdict form that um, the jury uh, found, you know, against Precise Solutions, but not against Precise International, or I guess Precise Solutions, LLC, Precise Solutions Incorporated. Can you talk a little bit about, especially with as many entities as you had involved, how you helped the jury kind of keep them straight, how you helped them understand how all these entities could have a part to play in this? Well,
0: you know, what we wanted to make sure that we did not do is that we didn't end up with some entities that didn't have an active role in this. So once we once we were pretty well certain that we had the actors and then the surviving entities um, nailed down, we, we we got precise down to precise solutions and precise, I think, precise international was involved, but there was a, a joint venture with Medusend and I can't remember what the name of that joint venture was. Um, but that's, that's where I get the, the law guys involved around here and just ask him to, you know, keep, keep me from, from screwing this case up. So they did a great job with that.
1: Yeah. And I I saw that uh, it looked like by the time the case went to verdict that, uh, the doctor, Dr. Amari was no longer in the case. And it also looked like, um, um, Mercy, mercy medical was no longer in the case was that uh right. was that just strategic to let them go
0: or was there a uh, it was yeah it was i mean the 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 thing about it was that when when i sat through the deposition um of i can't remember whose expert it was but but the number of times that dr amari dictated eight units of levomir in the record at thomas hospital and it was correct i mean it was dozens and dozens of times um and this is the one where they, they got it wrong. So, And then when you listen to the audio, the audio um, clearly said eight units. But I, I think I sent some requests for admission that said, if the audio could reasonably be interpreted as 80 units um, and could reasonably be interpreted as Dr. Amari saying 80 units, then and in that limited event, would it be a deviation from the standard of care if he actually said 80 units? And they said, yes, it would be. So, you know, although I didn't have an expert against Dr. Amari that I call at trial, I use that to say the plaintiff shouldn't be put at risk here because of a dispute among the defendants as to what he said. We believe he said 88 eight units. They say he said 80. Um, if he said 80, and it could be reasonably interpreted as 80, he admits it's a deviation. So let's keep him in the case at least until the close of all the evidence, which is pretty much what happened with Mercy Medical, too so okay if that makes sense
1: yeah no absolutely um well i mean this is uh this uh uh case i'm I'm, part of me is sitting here thinking and you you never know because what kind of reports they're getting but uh you know if the defense lawyer is looking at this case and they're reading this testimony uh did you ever figure out why they didn't make a reasonable offer or why they would think this is a good case of trial?
0: I don't think the defense lawyers made that decision. I think the money people behind the scenes may have, I don't know. Um, but it's, you know, my, my approach to that in all instances, it's why I don't send pre-suit demand letters. I mean, I'm going to get the case and I'm going to, you know, do as much as I can to get ready before I file it, file it. And then Get the case ready for trial if they stop it from going to trial by settling the case for a fair amount and they do if they don't I don't care and I'm just going to proceed on and that's pretty pretty well how I handled this. Um, you know, I think that Thomas hospitals lawyers probably they're very good lawyers. They probably understood the nature of what they were dealing with. But, you know, the Thomas Hospital and Mobile Infirmary, um, they're owned by the same entity. You know they hadn't had a bad result in Baldwin County, so
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Maybe that maybe they thought that they had, they had a a good place to fight this one out. I don't know, but they've got they have talented lawyers, and, right? And, and they're and they're not poor risk managers when it comes to case evaluation. So I have to, I'm not going to throw them under the bus here. That's for sure. I I really don't think it was their their doing.
2: Right? You just you would think that it would have stood out what a how different this case is from your typical medical malpractice, especially with the evidence that you were able to get to, both in terms of how the transcription was happening and 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 the mistakes that were being made and the, the the statements that were made about sort of the U.S. standards for for protecting patients. I mean, it just that that seems to me to be more the kind of case. Like you know, medical malpractice cases in general can be kind of polarizing with jurors but this seems like the thing that like hey can't we all agree that uh we want to be pretty careful about the amount of medication that is administered to us
0: well yeah yeah, i agree with you and i also think that probably from this from uh, pre-trial looking all the paperwork um it was a lot easier for the the money guys making the decisions for like the hospital or or whoever, to say, well, listen, at the end of the day, our protocols are the doctors got to sign off on this. Mm. It's not our fault. He didn't. And and it's not our fault. It was transcribed wrong. We don't warrant the accuracy of the transcription. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's the transcriptionist fault. It's not our fault. They're our vendor. And, um, and I think that probably weighed pretty heavily in their decision to, right. to do what they did. Right. You know, really a causation issue. And, and, you know, in Alabama, there's joint several liability. And so um, I don't think that they probably thought that they would be held accountable. They'd be in the hospital held responsible for what somebody did in India. And, you know, and then they also, they said, well, you know, if we made a mistake, the people that actually administered the medication wrong made a mistake by not reconciling the, right. you know, the paperwork they received with the, uh, with the patient, and then I ask the patient what she usually gets, because she gives herself eight units of the Leavenir, you know. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need?
2: Really great lawyers like me.
1: Re- that is exactly right. Really <laughs> great lawyers like Yvonne. <laughs> uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases?
2: I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm gonna say our website.
1: (laughs) Our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does.
2: Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, Reputation management, which sounds very mysterious.
1: I I definitely need some reputation management. I'd like to find out exactly what that does.
2: We need to look into that one a bit more.
1: Uh, And they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital Law Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com.
2: Did you ever think when you were like, filed the first version of this complaint or sort of got things underway that you'd end up you know, having to serve under the Hague at what, a couple of times and go to India. I mean, it sounds pretty, I, no, I, I didn't, I but you
0: there. know, <laughs> no, I didn't, but you know, the, you go where the, where the evidence leads you. And really it was just as simple as saying, I want to take the deposition of the person that transcribed this dictation. That's all I want to do for right now. And it led me into this, this, uh, battle to try to find those people. Um, and they were on the other side of the world. So, wow.
1: yeah, I'm just I'm just wondering when you were doing this uh, this deposition out on the streets uh, in India uh, in front of the building, did you time it so that there was like an animal walking behind you? No, right? I didn't have as to, as man. <laughs> you,
2: you,
0: know, you don't understand. I didn't have to do that. There was plenty of that without me having to stage it. I right. promise you. Coffee. <laughs> Well, um,
1: yeah, you know, I was thinking about this case. I mean, I'm I'm guessing that even Dr. Amare probably had to had to testify that yeah, if she was given you know 80 units yeah. of care, that that's a breach of the standard of care, and that's uh, you know obviously not good. So you know, from a medical malpractice standpoint, I mean, it's it's not it's it's like you were saying. I mean, it's not where a doctor's sitting there trying to do his best, and he makes a, a legitimate mistake where a jury. You know it doesn't get upset, I mean this is really just uh carelessness by this, these companies
0: well, yeah, and the thing about it is and you've handled these kind of cases where it's not a whether somebody screwed up it's a who done it case right and and everybody thought they had a good defense that yes, this never should have happened, but who done it I didn't do it and um so, you know, right. it's just, just some of them were wrong.
1: Right. <laughs> Those are, you know, not, you know over here in Georgia, where we have apportionment, it you know you get a lot of times where they're pointing the finger at somebody else. But I, I guess you know when you've got joint and several liability, uh, you know, there's always a chance they're going to find you did you know something wrong, even if it's uh, even if it's not as bad as somebody else.
0: Yeah, but it's punitive only over here. So um, oh, right in death yeah. case. So there's if you've got a defendant that might have messed up that that is a nice person or a nice company and is acting in good faith, you gotta leave them in the case and produce, you know, generate enough evidence to survive summary judgment so that you don't create an empty, don't allow the other defendants to have an empty chair um, when you've got really bad wrongdoers. And that's kinda what we had here, is doing enough to keep everybody in the case, even the, the people who acted with innocent hearts but may have screwed up a little bit, um, but keep them in with the, the, the bad actors.
1: You know, yeah. Go ahead and explain that to our listeners. The difference there, you know, in, in in wrongful death cases here in Georgia, you know, we we view it from the standpoint of the uh, decedent and and what the value of their life was. When you when you say that it's a you know punitive only, explain that to our listeners.
0: Yeah, it's 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 unique. I think Alabama. There may be one other state that does this. I don't. I'm not sure. Um, but it's a it, it, the wrongful death uh, act in Alabama focuses on the wrongdoing of the defendant, the defendant's conduct, the defendant's state of mind, the the gravity of the wrong, the reprehensibility of the conduct, the need to punish the, the defendant uh, to, to preserve human life and to serve as an example um, to others who might be so inclined to act that irresponsibly. And unlike in other states, you go to the jury on simple negligence and um, in medical malpractice cases, now you also in Alabama, you've got contributory negligence. So if the plaintiff was contributorily negligent, it's a complete bar.
1: Right. So yeah. if
0: there's 95% negligence by the defendants, and you know, five percent by the plaintiff. You're out of court. You know, bar unless unless you've got recklessness. If you've got recklessness, then contributory negligence is not a defense. So and then you've got joint and several liability. So uh, it's a it's a unique. Um, set of laws, and it, it really compels the focus, uh, the whole, all the, the plaintiff lawyers to focus, you've got to, to get your case ready, on what did the defendant do wrong, was it a, I stubbed my toe, or they really, really, um, it's premeditated, and they thought it through before they did it, and just didn't care about the consequences, mm-hmm. to save some some bucks. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that definitely makes it hard when you have a, like you said, a simple negligence case. But I guess in some ways that can be good if you can. It allows you to get in evidence that you know, at least over here in Georgia, we wouldn't normally be a, be able to get in unless we've got a punitive damages case.
0: Yeah, and then you you've got a cap in, on punitive damages. What, two hundred fifty thousand? So and, yeah, unless um, you
1: can show uh, specific intent. So that's and that's uh, obviously hard to show.
0: Yeah. Well, then then you've pled and proved yourself out of insurance coverage for the right. defendant, right? <laughs> right,
1: right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you mentioned this uh, uh, briefly. I just wanted to ask you, was, was causation an issue here as far as, the, you know, whether or not the um, overdose of Levomir was actually the cause of her death? It sounds like she had some medical, you know, quite a few medical issues anyway. So was there any type yeah. of argument by the defense that, hey, she was just in poor health and we're real sorry?
0: Well, there there was. I think they were all scared to make that argument because um, there were enough defendants there that whoever made the argument was worried that everybody would turn on them. But she not only was she a brittle diabetic, she was in renal failure. She was on dialysis um, and had a host of, of issues. Now she was cognitively fine, um, but she was not in good health, and that's probably why early on they didn't take the cases seriously. Right. Um, you, you know. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, it, it, it's hard to make that argument when you're giving her 10 times the amount of the, the, um, uh, me- medicine that she's, that she needs. And then, you know, as far as just from a timeline standpoint, I mean, it's right after that that she starts to deteriorate. So, uh,
0: well, and we had a great expert. He's, he's retired now, Philip Walson, Um, and I, we, I put him on early on in the case, um, and early enough, I mean, like in the first, I can't remember if he was the third witness or the, the first, third, fourth, something like that. He was in the first day and a half of trial. And the guy was so well credentialed that, um, that it, taking off after him would have taken, some defendant would have really had to try real hard for a very modest return Um Right. On that. and You know, I mean, what are you going to say? It's okay to give somebody 10 times the amount of insulin. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, <laughs> and he talked about hypoglycemia and the different levels of drive you. I mean, at some point, I can't remember what her, her blood sugar was, but it was down in the teens. And, uh, you know, that's just a fatal medication error, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the other thing I wanted to have you talk about a little bit is you um you use a lot of demonstratives in your opening. I thought very effectively. Just talk about your, you know, how you put a case together and when your your sort of view of demonstrative cuz this, you know, just going through your slides it sort of just lays out the case very well and um and I I, I really liked it.
0: Well, thank you what what i kinda I've been practicing now for about thirty years, and what I discovered eight or so years into into practicing and and you know I guess since I've been doing it for thirty years, we tried more cases back in the late eighties and into the in the nineties is to restrain myself from getting ahead of the jury you know the jury does not know anything about the case does not know that if the lawyers on the other side have been fighting if who's telling the truth or what. And then instead of characterizing the evidence, um, what I've tried to do and that with demonstratives and with graphics of the actual testimony is adhere very, very faithfully to what the evidence is and is going to be instead of my characterization of it. And typically when I get an objection, I always use testimony from the corporate defendant's deposition and opening statement. I said, yes, I'm not going to characterize what the witness said. I'm going to show the jury exactly what the evidence is and what I expect it to be. And if anything, everyone should be grateful for that, not throwing rocks at me because I'm not going to get up and say something expansive and, you know, hyperbolic and over and over inflammatory. And that way um, I, I feel like, it suits my personality, first of all, and I think it suits the process because by the time we get to the end of the case and <clears throat> it's ready for the fireballs to start being thrown, you know, the jury knows that I'm not a hothead. And when I get after the other side for doing something mean and illegal and stupid right. and it warrants punishment, <laughs> I've got more uh, credibility. Yeah, yeah. So that's just my feel uh, for, for how, how I'm comfortable. Front of case
1: No, I really like that. I mean, especially you know, uh, talking about not getting ahead of the jury. It's so, something that you know we always have to to watch ourselves on. And I always talk to uh, you know our associates here and tell them you know look, you can't get more angry than the jury lets you get, and uh, they don't understand why you're so upset. So uh, you know,
0: don't do it. Well, but- yeah, <laughs> I agree with you, Steve. I mean, the thing about it is, if you're if you if you're wondering whether the whether or not the jury will uh, If I'm wondering whether or not the jury uh, will tolerate me getting upset, then it's too early. You know, it's when I feel like the jury is sitting there saying, God, you have got to get this guy. You have got to get this expert, because if you don't, there's something wrong going on here. And then when you've got the green light, you know that you just you know, eviscerate them with with the evidence. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, I, le- I the other thing I like about that idea of not getting ahead of the jury and um, is that I feel like a lot of times, I don't know if this happens with other be- people, but I feel like a lot of times our trial team, we end up coming up with the best idea for or the demonstrative we end up using the most either like right before trial or sometimes even in trial, like we suddenly realize that, you know, because we've been in the case for years and are kind of focused on sort of these complicated issues, or have gotten so far ahead that then we forget kind of how to break down the very simple beginning, um, early thing, and then we just kind of hopefully realize it before it's too late. <laughs> right
0: yeah, before. I agree with you a hundred percent. I probably spend more time thinking about the first uh, sixty seconds that I'm going to be standing in front of the jury and opening statement than well, almost as much time for that—the uh, first five or six sentences—as I do for the rest of the opening statement. You know, and then, you know, the big challenge, if you've worked a case up for a long time is having the discipline to edit down to, and it probably when you looked at, the papers in this and the demonstrators you're like he didn't edit this down i didn't use all of those but there's a there's a, there's too much stuff to use in that one hour opening statement but it was edited down some there's a lot of there's a lot of graphics
1: well so. I, you know what i like is that you really uh i don't know if you meant to give us all this but you gave it you gave us your process because you uh we, we have your handwritten notes and then we have your typewritten notes and then we've then we've got your uh your uh, presentation and uh, you can really see as you're looking through them, you know, how you were, you know, honing your message and coming up with your themes and, uh, and, and, you know, and I think you, you had had like four, you know, overall themes uh, about, you know, not putting patients at risk and that you know, medication errors are some of
0: the worst risk out there. And it, it, it was, uh, it was, it was really nice. To see. Yeah, thanks. I think what you've got is the, the, the first page and a half, which is typed is the first thing out of my mouth. And the handwritten uh, notes, that's my actual outline that I use. Okay. And you'll see in the, in the red, it's got where it says wallow, like spend some time on this and <laughs> use this <laughs> okay. graphic. Um, and then the, the the typed up notes are like the paralegal listening to all opening statements.
1: Oh, they do that? And the
0: graphics. Yeah, she was doing it at the time. Ah, I, think. I gotcha.
1: Okay. Okay. That's really helpful, you know, because I, 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 I really uh, – not only do I like, you know, uh, us to know our own notes, but it, but really take detailed notes of the defense's opening. That way, when you come back around to closing, you can, you know, say things like, you remember when he told you he was going to do this? And then, yeah. You know.
0: And it's helpful to have competent, uh, experienced people with you there, Steve. Yeah. You know, because you're tired enough after the opening statement that <laughs> you really don't want to sit there and scribble. And the other thing, you don't want the jury to st- – Watch you furiously trying to scribble while the other side's talking because they, you want them to think that you think it's all BS anyway. Right. So right. You don't need to take a note. Right. You know? Right. Exactly. exactly. Well, so. Skip,
2: obviously your method was effective since I don't think many people can say that uh, the jury gave them twice what they asked for. Right.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's always yeah. a, <laughs> that's
0: always good. It would be I would be satisfied if I got what I asked for more right. than half the time. You know? so. Right. <laughs> exactly
1: well skip this has been a great interview and, and we really appreciate your time is there anything else you want to let our listeners know about uh the case of uh juno versus uh precise solutions and golf health hospitals uh that we haven't talked about so far
0: no no they're, they're good clients it was a sad situation it was tragic shouldn't have happened and uh I was just glad to be a part of the team that got to put it on, along with my partners, uh, Toby Brown and Brian Duncan and Dave Wardis. So... Well,
1: it's, it's a fantastic job and, uh, you know, and just uh, I, I really, you know, I think it's also an example of that once you do all that leg work that you guys obviously did uh, during, you know, getting the case ready, that by the time you try it, that, that the trial comes together pretty nicely. But it's because there is just uh, many, many hours of extremely hard work behind it and uh, it's obvious that you all uh, went to the ends of the earth to, uh, to make sure that this case was put on right. Well, thank
0: you. But, um, Thanks very much.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I just want to remind our listeners that we have been talking to uh, to Skip Think Bonner. Uh, Skip is a partner at Cunningham Bounds in Mobile, Alabama. You can look up. Uh, Skip at cunninghambounds.com, and we've been talking about the case of Sharon Juno versus Gulf Health Hospitals, Precise Solutions, MedUcent Solutions, and Samtech Tech DataSys. And uh, the result of that was a uh, Baldwin County, Alabama verdict of $140 million for the uh, tragic death of Sharon uh, Juno. Um, and just uh, really good talking to you, Skip.
0: Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you. It was good talking to y'all.
1: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
2: Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you wanna be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at great note. If you have something mean to say, we don't have email, right? Exactly.
1: <laughs> we only need a uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
2: we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We,
1: we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast On The Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again.
2: Thank you for listening.